Just going to issue a little uh, qualifier up front. Um, I've already said it to the brothers here. Um, this is not something, a format that I'm comfortable with. And uh, the folks back home would mock me severely because they know that when I'm home in my home assembly, I rarely ever, and without exaggeration, open my mouth in a Bible study. It's just not something I've ever been comfortable with. And I was writing uh, Mrs. Sandy Higgins, Ruth Higgins, this morning, and I said, one thing I'm looking forward to heaven is no Bible studies and no panel discussions. <laughs> but these two brothers are very gracious, and if um, they do the most of the talking, it's because I've encouraged them to sort of take the lead. But if you... Have your Bibles there. We're just going to read a couple of verses. There is an outline at the back, whether or not you picked it up. Um, there are outlines at the back. But the subject is spiritual decline and uh, restoration. One of my concerns for this concluding session is it could be depressing. So I've just whispered in Mr. Gilliland's ears that we need to leave it. Uh, the saints encouraged. So he has a few minutes to think about how he can leave us encouraged at the end of this session. But we want to look at the factors that could, will lead to one's spiritual uh, decline and demise, and what are those vulnerabilities, and if we don't address them, what could happen, and then the wonderful possibility of restoration. I'm sure in some, to some degree we're restored every week when we read our, read our Bibles. There's something there that touches our hearts and draws us closer to the person of Christ. But then there's a, the other aspect of restoration in a much larger uh, scheme of things. But Psalm 23, well known. And we just read the first three verses. A Psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And just over a few psalms to Psalm 51. Psalm 51, and the same person who wrote Psalm 23 wrote Psalm 51. And it's after David's sin grievous sin. In verse 10 he writes, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and uphold me with thy free spirit. And just one more in Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. Another set of verses that we're mostly familiar with. Verse 31, And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, you, that he may swift, sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee, the thought is specifically, Simon, that thy faith, 
fail not. And when thou art converted, or when you have returned to me, strengthen thy brethren. There's probably many other verses that we can um, mention as the discussion unfolds, but we go to conferences like this, and then maybe next year we'll go and there'll be a face missing. And we inquire, and um, something has happened. And maybe you're at this conference. The question is, will you be at the next conference? And I guess it's all our concerns and fears because none of us are safe until we are home in heaven. So none of us can afford to be casual or slack. And we've just been hearing a message about that, that we need to take our Christian life very seriously. Two, next to my wife and family, Two of my closest friends that I've ever had in life are away from the Lord. They once were very active in assembly fellowship. I know others who have gone on to other uh, places, churches, but I have two friends who once took active part in gospel, once wept when they remembered the Lord, wrote beautiful Christ-exalting, one of them beautiful Christ-exalting poetry. Dear, dear friends of mine, and since they've gone, I've never been able to replace them with friends. And they're both out in the world. And... It just breaks my heart. They've been there now for quite a while. I was almost gone. I was within a hair's breadth of leaving the assembly. Our kids were in their very formative years as little children. And I came this close to being gone like my brother and his wife, gone. Kids grew up never knowing the gospel, gone. And so the area of spiritual decline is something that I think about a lot. I see the propensity of my own heart, the treachery of my flesh and the, the cunningness of Satan and the draws of the world and so this is a very relevant subject. So we want to talk about the slippery slopes of spiritual decline. And if you have the outline, these are not uh, sequential. We just listed some factors that may contribute to spiritual decline. We may not cover them all. They're not discrete stand standalone items that are listed. Sometimes it's a, a convergence of factors. And so we'll talk a little bit about that, and then we would like to move into the restoring the, the joy of communion. I think we, we were talking this morning at the breaking of bread, just the beautifulness of the Lord's Supper. And you can look back on times when we would sing, O head once filled with bruises, oppressed with shame and scorn, Overwhelmed with sore abuses, mocked with a crown of thorns, and a little teardrop would 
run down your face. But how long since there has been a teardrop on your cheek? When have you last made a note in your journal? I go through some of my old journals and I say, Oh Lord, that must have been a week when I was walking closely with you. And so, we'll talk about restore, the restoring power of God in our lives. And He is a God of restoration. And so without any further comments, I'm just going to, we'll just leave it there. We want to discuss those contributing factors to one's spiritual decline and demise. Maybe I'll just ask the question to the panelists here. You know, um, is it an event? Looking on, sometimes it seems like it's an event. But in my own personal experience, it's not an event. It's more like a process. Just before you talk about the specifics, like how, what happens here? Well, I think there is the impact of an event. Sometimes the event can precipitate a process and sometimes an event can be the result of a process. <clears throat> but I think the point that we should make on this is that spiritual decline is never just one event in isolation. Mm. It's always either the trigger for a process that comes from that or it is the culmination. I suppose the, the best example is the man that you read of in Psalm 51, of what happened for him. Now that process took place in a very short period of time, it would appear. But it started off with a man who should have been somewhere else, he should have been on the battlefield, and he wasn't. And then it, it proceeded into seeing something that he shouldn't have seen. It then went into an activity that shouldn't have taken place, which became another other activity that shouldn't, and it just it was just a downward decline. So I think there is scriptural precedent that would suggest that it's very rarely just one event. I think your ministry just that we've just listened to, um, just the, the, the walking after the spirit or the flesh, Galatians, um, every reason why we should be very diligent and rather than let something continue, as soon as we're aware of something that's tugging at our heart or causing us to lose our vibrancy of spirit, we need to deal with it without it lingering on. There may be biblical, I meant to mention this in the opening, just um, these men have much more experience than I have and they're, they're better traveled than I have to other parts of the world. They know more Christians than I do. So feel free to draw on biblical references or on personal experiences of people that you know and um, just uh, even your own personal experience. It would be very insightful for the, for the audience um, if if we even shared a little bit of our own personal experience. Well, I was just, <clears throat> just thinking about um, the, the third reference to restoration in the book of Psalms. Uh, Brother Peter, you, you refer to the two Psalms of David, He restoreth my soul, restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. And then the third reference to restore in Psalm 69, another Psalm of David, concerning the Lord Jesus, he restored that which he took not away. So would you think maybe 
that one of the secrets that would stop the process even commencing is attempting to keep ourselves in a fresh appreciation of just the great work that the Lord Jesus accomplished at Calvary. Mm -hmm. So his big restoration and the price that he paid keeps us close and warm. And, yeah. I guess that's what I was thinking this morning and the value of the Lord's Supper. I know it should be much more about, not ourselves, about him, but in preparation for the Lord's Supper. Every seven days we have this opportunity and you sort of wonder, um, like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. I'm thankful for that weekly checkup. Do I value mm -hmm. the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and, and what he accomplished mm -hmm. at the cross for the likes of me? And it sort of, it's a, a weekly reminder of walking closely with the Lord. Yeah, there, there seems to be that there was no accident in the weekly design. I mean, I know there are theological reasons, but uh, there's something in the wisdom and the grace of God in, in giving us this, this very poignant reminder. Now, now, I know we've all done it, probably. It's very, it's very easy to put your hand into a loaf in, in a state that possibly you shouldn't be, but there is something that catches you every time that you are partaking of those emblems, and that's the design of it. It says Paul, as he's talking about it, it says, let a man examine himself. Am I, am I worthy to partake of this? Am I worthy to be present at, um, at this remembrance? And so there is something about it that just should catch us, and we should use it as that as well, to just catch us to anything that's come into the life and to stop it at source. Uh, and just in connection with that, and you, you'll be referring maybe more to Peter. Uh, Peter stumbled, as we know, and you'll be telling us about that and stread and so on. But John stood. When Peter was stumbling, John stood at the cross. But I think we go back, we go back a stage further. The man who stood rather than stumble was the man who had leaned on the night before. Mm. So his closeness to Christ, you know, I don't know, brother. We we sometimes think that what preserves a Christian is knowledge, and knowledge is certainly very good. But I think there's nothing as a preservative like communion with the Savior, closeness to Christ. Yeah. So which is the first point, the disruption in our communion. So um, you have years of experience. Like, can you give us, the audience, any personal, like how, how do you go about maintaining that uh, in-touchness with the Lord? Um, because life, your life is busy, your life is busy. What, how have you structured your life to ensure that um, what tips, what, what advice can you give, what, what has helped you in, um, in, in just that daily um, closeness? Well, I'm in a period of life right now where flexibility is, is what you need to survive. I sometimes look back, I, I was speaking about this to somebody recently, just, just this weekend, and uh, you don't realize just how selfish you are until you, until you have children. Well, I didn't at least. And I look at myself and I think, I had so much time to do what I wanted to do and do this and do that and the rest of it. And the reality is when there are things that there, you just need to deal with it. And you think to yourself, well, that's time that I'd have had in my study before. You know, so that hour that I had to spend doing that or that, whatever it is. So what's the answer to that? Well, the answer to that actually comes back to organization and it comes back to sacrifice. 
So it comes, you have to do all of those things. You, you, you have to do the, the required things. There are nappies that need to be changed. Sorry, diapers that need to be changed. And there are you know, prams that need to be pushed. Sorry, strollers that need to be pushed. And all of that kind of thing. That, that all exists. But in order, I have found in the last 10 or 11 months that in order to maintain my communion, it requires sacrifice. So I have to step back and say, if I want to have that communion, then I need to get up earlier. Even though the sleep was dis uh, disrupted, even though, and you might say, well, that's very, that's very harsh. But in the reality of my life is that I've proven this, that without communion, I am nothing. And I am liable to failure and to, and to all of the flaws and all of the, the temptations that are around us. So I, I think it comes a lot back to sacrifice and the commitment to that, to that uh, communion. Uh, so am I, am I right in thinking, Mervyn, Brother we're more or less talking in practical terms about trying to build into our lives an upper room experience. Mm -hmm. Like there were enormous pressures on the night before the cross and so many things to be dealt with and the problems of Judas and all that kind of thing. But the Lord took the disciples off the street, above street level, and had dedicated time, he and they alone with each other. And in a busy world, there's nothing, you know, it's like a Christian can very easily end up on the, the little finger on the dial of his things running on empty, and he still tries to keep going. Mm. And the one thing that he needs to do is look for a gas station and stop and get a refill. And if the finger says empty, he can try to keep going, and it won't be too long until a bit of a chug and he's left sitting just on the hard shoulder, broken down, mm -hmm. all for the want of stopping and refilling. And life's a bit like that too, isn't it? Mm -hmm. yeah. Just a, a personal thing, and I'll, I'll share my personal thing, a little bit of structure. Uh, I can't say that I have a vibrant morning uh, every morning. It's often very barren. But when I was in secular employment, I, real, like I, I just realized I, you, if you're going to get something from the, from the Lord, from his word, you need to make sacrifices and so i would set my alarm at five o'clock in the morning and i'm not like not bragging i'm an early morning person i go i shut down around 9 30 or 10 in the evening <laughs> so um you may be very alive then but and then i would like it was just i i got such a scare that i almost left that i saw what happened to my brother and i saw what bitterness could do to me and i just wanted to try and build a little bit of structure um, and for what it, was, what it was worth, and it was worth a lot to me. And so when I was in, in business, I would, like I set the alarm, and coffee helped me get up in the morning. So I would set the coffee at 4.50 to come on, and the brew would start. So when my alarm went off at 5, 5 o'clock, I got those whiffs of coffee. Anything that you can bring into your life to keep you in your routine of having that devotional time with the Lord. When I went out into the Lord's work, I almost fell apart because the structure was gone. I was traveling. I was in people's homes. I couldn't be banging around at five o'clock in the morning and couldn't, I didn't know how to work their coffee machines. And for a while, so then I, like, it took me a, quite a few months to figure out what to do because I wasn't as, I wasn't as happy as I was when I was in business. So then I had a, carry a portable coffee machine. And I said, I'm, I don't care where I'm staying. 
I have to have structure in my life, and you probably found your own little ways to keep structure, but it's the disruption in our communion is is just a, a is a is a very dangerous part of Christian experience. It's the beginning of, a, of the slippery slopes. But what about this area of, of times when we were very dependent on the Lord, and then times when we're not dependent on the on the Lord? Um, could that bring about our demise? Um, the dis, the displacement in our in our dependence. Mm. Uh, I suppose. Uh, Suppose we're going to give Peter a hard—not this Peter, but the Bible Peter—a hard time. You'll think about you'll think about him a little bit here. Along that, yeah. And what, what what always amazes me about Peter is we sometimes say people if they got pointed faithful ministry, they would, you know, the Lord told Peter, the Lord said to Peter. Before the cock crow twice, you'll deny me thrice. Told him right there, eyeball to eyeball, from the mouth of Christ, the ear of Peter heard the direct ministry, and yet within about seven hours, even though Peter had been warned in large letters, Peter still, maybe because of, maybe a wee bit of self-confidence or something just, and thought he couldn't do it type of thing, and, there was a time when he he came out of the got out of the boat and walked started walking but then he cried out he lost all sense of confidence and lord save me but on the other particular occasion he seemed to be quite confident that others may fall around him but he would be he would remain faithful and and so i i was thinking just in preparation for this i was thinking of deuteronomy 8 and 10, when thou hast eaten and art full, then thou shalt bless the Lord thy God for the good land which he hath given thee. Beware that thou forget not the Lord thy God. Verse 14, then thine heart be lifted up and thou forget the Lord thy God, which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Verse 17, and thou say in thine heart, my power and the might of mine hand hath gotten me this wealth. It's easy to be very dependent on the Lord when we've lost our job and we draw really close to him or when someone is sick in our family and we're reading, praying, we're calling out to him. We're dependent and we're walking closely with him. Society mitigates against us in this in this one or current society does in that it's all about independence. It's all about being financially secure, it's about being intellectually secure, it's about enjoying your, your autonomy and, and really being confident in yourself. Now, I suppose to a degree there's nothing wrong with any of that, but when that becomes the bedrock of your life, then that is a collision course with disaster. And so we, we need to be understanding of the fact that the theology, and I use that word in inverted commas, the theology of the world, because they believe it as passionate as we believe our truth, uh, God's truth, the theology of the world, uh, you need to know when that theology, when that, let, let's scrub that word, because I'm going to confuse myself if I keep using that word in that context. The philosophy of the world. You need to understand that when it parts with scripture, and when it's taking you down a bypath meadow, and when it's going to take you somewhere that's going to end in disaster. <clears throat> I 
You're looking up something in the Old Testament there, or did you? No, just a, no. no I, I was thinking of maybe the gradual decline too in Samson's life, like just hmm. going out just on his own, moving into strange territory, visiting unusual places. Even even when a lion roared against him, he still pushed the boat out. Uh, isn't that a danger? Maybe I'm not sure. Maybe I'm, I'm jumping too quick. Isn't it a danger? Maybe distancing ourselves from the Lord and, and then beginning to get too close or brinkmanship or bordering with the world type of thing. Yeah. I think our self-confidence can do that to us. Um, and so sometimes you hear about Christians going through crisis and uh, in a crisis and they seem to be prospering spiritually because they're dependent, there's no question at that point that their dependence is on the Lord to see them through this. But when all is smooth sailing, um, we can become quite self-complacent and confident and get a little careless in our communion because things are going well. Do you think that there's a possibility, I, I, this is a rhetorical question, um, in our service, like, like you're flying, you're going back to work tomorrow morning, he, he plans to show up for work tomorrow morning in England. I mean, that's a very busy schedule, um, but here you are this weekend and uh, you're contributing and you're going to Halifax and, and uh, on to another conference in the Toronto area. Um, in our service, could I get away from the Lord? Oh, yeah, very, very easily, yeah. <coughs> in connection with that, I think a wee bit about the, about the fellow that was um, <coughs> helping to extend the, the place in Second Kings chapter 6, and he was busy, and then he lost the edge. <laughs> and was still busy and once you lose the edge you'll have a lot of work to do to try and break down a branch and at last he had to face the fact where did you lose it and had to get back so i'm thinking of that too. yeah 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 martha was very um like she was well-intentioned she wasn't just she just wasn't a fast service thing that she was productive you know she didn't call up the pizza shop she knew the Lord needed the best. She had special guests. And uh, she was doing her best to serve him, making sure the broccoli was not too soft and mushy, and just right. But here was Mary sitting at his feet. And she was seen to be a bit distracted when she stormed into the living room there. And uh, do you not? Care like she like she was scolding the master about her about her sister, and it's possible that could creep into our own hearts that we're just so busy with children's work and ESL classes, assembly functions, business, all of these things that we can become very distracted from back to our communion with the Lord. 
I, I, I think it's, it's significant just in connection with that, with all those instructions for the tabernacle in Exodus 25 to 31 or whatever it is, then you get the, the golden calf, mm. Exodus 32, 33, 34. And the tabernacle's put on hold. Then suddenly the tabernacle needs to be built. And we need to get this built because we've had a lapse. We've worshipped the golden calf. We should have been built. We need to get out this tabernacle with all the specifications, with all the materials. We need to get busy and working. Before there's a thing done, the first thing that's mentioned at the start of Exodus 35 is keeping the Sabbath. Mm. So the Lord says, I want you to be busy. I want you to build the tabernacle. I want you to have a sanctuary for me. But he said, before you get busy in the building, he says, enjoy rest and fellowship with me, first of all. So that we're sort of going back in that circle. Our service should really spring out of our communion, you know. And at that, if the root begins to dry up, then the whole thing will just wilt and wither. The Lord said to the disciples, come away and rest a while. Yeah. Took them away into a a different, a different place, place for some recuperation and I think we can't underestimate that I know sometimes it's difficult to get it but rest is vital in, for communion mm -hmm. um, I know that I'm looking at a number of believers here and um, you're facing the, the panelist um, I'm sure that most have suffered disappointments <coughs> in life one of my friends that I mentioned um, one of the things in his life was all his peers had been married and uh, it just wasn't happening for him and you could just see him wilting over a period of months and, and years and then he would go to a conference and feel like a, a misfit and then people well-intentioned Christians would come up to him and say, open your eyes, man. Look, there's lots of good ones. Uh, I remember one conference in particular, he blew up at a, a preacher who loved him to death. And the preacher never had any idea that this guy was hurting so much. And it was sort of along that line, look at, just open your eyes. There's one here for you. And um, That was probably the last conference that he attended. He said, I just can't go he said everybody's coming up to me and they're all talking about I'm not married is there something he said I can go to work every day and nobody's questioning whether I'm single or married why are Christians harassing me you know I'd like to be married like anybody else and um, so he had missed a lot of meetings and it's he wasn't in our assembly and I just asked I said will you come on this Wednesday night and um, he had missed, he, he said, I have migraines, and he had all kinds of reasons why he wasn't there. And, uh, and so we had a nice talk in the car to the Wednesday night prayer meeting and Bible reading, and, and the Christians were thrilled to see him. They just gathered around him. And one of the dear older sisters said, we know what you need. You just need a woman. And I, we had just been talking about that in the car. Well, he's, he's, never, he's never come back. He just, and he just went this level to this. Disappointments in life and the circumstances of life and disillusionment and, and struggles. And these things can weigh heavily upon us. 
and we can be insensitive in our remarks to each other. Yeah, I, I think closely related to that is the, the imaginary or not so imaginary scene that our brother narrated in his ministry today. When I look, when I look back at my generation, I think that singularly, that lie that the devil tells that they failed you, that person's failed you, there are plenty of better out there, they'll treat you better, or it hasn't worked for you within, within Christian circles, you know, there's somebody out there for you. I think singularly that lie has taken down more of my contemporaries than, than anything else. Mm -hmm. And it's a very, it's a very real one. Um, there is within every one of us, I think there's a greater or lesser degree, an innate desire for relationship. God created us in that way. I think I need to <laughs> be careful what I speak. This is being recorded, so my wife might get a little bit. Uh, she probably won't. She probably won't listen to it, so I'll probably be all right. <laughs> but in my personal experience, I was 34 when I married, which by the world standards is average, by assembly standards is incredibly old. And there was a there was a period in life when I when I really felt that, and I mean I don't mean to be humorous about it, but I felt a little bit of that from time to time. In fact, I told a. I told a story in my, in my own wedding speech about how that I was continually bombarded by, by people at, at weddings. I used to hate weddings because they'd all come up to me and say, you'll be next, you'll be next. And the punchline was, they stopped doing it when I did the same to them at funerals. But that was, uh, <laughs> which, uh, which got a bigger laugh today than it did on my wedding day. <laughs> but, but, but that was honestly how I felt was that uh, not, not really to that extent, but I, I, you know, that was starting. What it was in my life, what, though, was that what the Lord wanted from me was that to accept the possibility that I might be single. And that was a, that was a big thing to overcome in my life, for that, that that might just be his will for me. And I'm not saying that this is a magic, <laughs> a magic bullet, but as soon as I had come to that realization, genuinely come to that realization and admitted that in his presence, and things opened up. So it wasn't that he wanted me to be single. What he wanted was me. Mm -hmm. he wanted me to be open to his will. And I've heard other stories since then are very encouraging about the Lord's work and locations of the Lord's work and aspects of the Lord's work and things that are very similar to that. Mm -hmm. the, Lord, the Lord wants us. And that is what will keep us from making mistakes in this area, is understanding that the Lord has a will for us and he wants to, to go with us. And that maybe what we think might be his will might not be his will and being open to that. And, uh, related to that, uh, Brother Peter, is it not just disappointments in personal <coughs> life and relationships and so on that you mentioned, both have mentioned, disappointment with even assembly life. And I'm mm -hmm. thinking of maybe what, what uh, Mervyn hinted at earlier, Ruth chapter 1. I think it was a, it was a famine. A famine that put Abraham away from the altar down into Egypt and he eventually had to come back to the altar that he had left and it was a famine that put that family away from Bethlehem into Mo so sometimes sometimes we can maybe I'm not saying it excuses it but we can use difficult circumstances and famines to, as a, a lever for moving away I'm going to ask you a question about um, so these are the contributing factors, uh, some of the things that contribute to the possibility of spiritual decline. But I'm, I'd like to ask you a question about uh, the role of other believers to perceive that this Christian is struggling 
or even the role of shepherds in the assembly to notice that. So I'm going to give you time to prepare. I'll tell you a little my personal bit on the time that I came so close to it. And I don't, I was just thinking this afternoon, was it two years or was it five years? It was a long time. And it was um, um, a famine in the assembly. And I was in the condition of heart where I documented it every time I went to a meeting. And I had a nice wide margin Newberry Bible and I've told the story often. And I was, instead of making nice marginal notes, um, I had a, there were a few blank pages at the back of the Bible. And I, st I was in the condition of heart that I would, every meeting I went, I kept a journal, a, ju a log of everything that was going on. Do you think I was thriving and, and um, robustly enjoying the Lord at that point? No, but were those things going on? Absolutely, they were happening. But was Peter Ramsey handling it the right way? So here's where the shepherds come in. We lived over an hour away from meeting. We were at every, we never missed a meeting of the assembly. We had two little kids. I dressed right. We drove the hour in and the hour back, every meeting. If there were special meetings every night, we were at every meeting. We never missed a meeting. At the same time, I was keeping a log in the back of my Bible of everything that was going on. From all external appearances, I looked, I was taking part in the children's work, I looked like I was doing well. But I was, I was not. I needed someone to recognize. Someone that knew me, someone that was close. A shepherd that would care for me. Like a mother knows before anyone else notices, hey, my child doesn't seem to be up to par. There's that intimacy, that closeness. And I'm just wondering what you... I'm thankful to tell you that our shepherd did come and knock on our car window. And it was a brother that bailed me out over my teen years, wild teen years. I refused a job after he told me that wouldn't it be a good job for me. And he knew me. I was at his house every Friday night for pizza and a double order of cheese and, and Pepsi. And I wonder why, like, why, he had his own kids. Why did he ever bother with a teenager on a bicycle? And he just kept in touch with me. And he used to talk. He was the one that talked to me. And then he did the intervention. He said, Peter, you are self-destructing as a believer. He said, these issues are too big for you. Leave them with God. And you look after your own soul. And that what drive home, an hour drive home. I thought that's exactly what's happening. Famine bitterness, wilderness, I'm self-destructing. And that was a turnaround night of my life when I put the, we put the kids to bed. And I confess my own sin, not the sins of the assembly. I just said, Lord, I'm more wrong in my heart than all the other things that are happening in the assembly. And so, but I worry not everyone has a shepherd that's following them perhaps so closely. We're all, the elders of a local assembly are very busy. What's the answer in 2019 for those who are struggling? Have you seen models that worked? Adequate shepherding? 
Well, <laughs> I'm very loath to say anything about shepherding, <laughs> but I think the scripture makes it perfectly clear. I kind of summarized some of what Titus had to do on Crete, that there was a, a huge demand, and there still is in 2019, a huge demand in the local assembly context for, for, for shepherding. Um, I wouldn't criticize them. To, <laughs> I couldn't criticize them. I think what we need to keep in perspective, elders and shepherds, they have their own flesh to contend with. <clears throat> and they have their own battles with the world and their, themselves. They have their own family issues to, to worry about and to, to burden them down. And sometimes we can be super critical. And we need not, we shouldn't be that way. But the other side of it is, we need to be sensitive to where the Lord's people are at, where the sheep are, and have some relationships with them so the early warning signs are, are not missed. No, it's a big challenge, all that, of that, and isn't part of that, if we take the biblical metaphor of shepherding, like it's, no, no matter how much we think of it, it's, it's almost impossible for us to get into the mindset of an Eastern shepherd. Like he didn't live in a house and the sheep four miles away in a nice meadow. He was there every day, there in the heat, there in the frost, with them all the time. And with his trained eye, he could be very diagnostic. He could see a sheep, maybe that was even any shepherd to this day will tell you, a sheep that begins to stay out on its own and wants to eat its own little patch, and a sheep that no longer enjoys fresh grass. And you can maybe tell from some signs that there's a tummy problem here, something. So the diagnostic eye of a trained shepherd maybe will notice, but as you say, he'd have to be close because an Eastern Shepherd was always in, in, in contact with the sheep. Yeah. And it, that works two ways as well. In, in our society now, um, sheep, sheep don't like to be shepherded. You can't ask questions. Mm -hmm. you, you dare not ask too many questions. You, know, you can't... They, I mean, they have, it bad, they have it bad on both fronts. They have the scriptural principles to live up to, and then they have recalcitrant treat the sheep that won't be shepherded. So, uh, you know, it's uh, in many ways it is a thankless task, but I think scriptures, I think there's a great reward that is for shepherds, but I think sh scripture gives us enough information to let us know that it's it, upon earth that it could be a thankless task, mm -hmm. i.e. that it would be very difficult. Mm -hmm. I was, are we moving on to the next yes. one? I was interested in this disaffection in our hearts and you had here bitterness and resentment towards those we res once respected and then also exposure to philosophy and vain deceit. I, th I find those, I, I, I wondered if you had something in your mind there, but I find those two very interesting. Because of the access that we have to the wider Christian world in the day in which we live, these, these are very real. So for example, if you 20 years ago put your faith in Joshua Harris as a role model for Christianity and the books that he wrote and you, you modeled your dating life on them, you could be very disaffected in your heart right now. He's just, he's just apostatized the faith. If you're going in for the philosophy and vain deceit or a turn to the theologies of, say for example, this might, I might never be back on these shores by saying this, but I'm going to say it anyway. 
if you've gone in for the alternative theologies of Jordan Peterson or Ben Shapiro or those kind of men who in outward presentation are very closely aligned aligned is the word aligned to what we believe but when you scrape beneath the surface and look at the the root of what it is it is corrupt Jordan Peterson is a is an evolutionary psychologist there's nothing godly about that man. He might agree that the Bible has some good role models for life and some good proverbs that we might pick up. But the, the man is an evolutionist. Uh, we need to be very careful. I, I know of casualty on our side of the Atlantic in assembly circles because of Jordan Peterson. And likely there'll be some fallout because of Josh Harris as well. And other, we could go through the list. I'm not interested in names. I just use those two particularly. We could go through the names over the last decade of people that have made it big in the Christian world and then have just come crashing down and we need to look very carefully at our own circles as well I, I don't want the people think that I'm just gunning for the outside we need to look very closely and then even more closely at our own heart what are we putting forth what is the are we encouraging people to follow our savior or are we encouraging people to follow us we need to be very careful about that kind of thing but that will all lead to disaffection in the hearts Colossians 2 and you alluded to it the philosophy um, see to it that no one, one rendering is, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world. And so you mentioned someone like a Jordan Peer, um, Peterson. We have enough struggles with our own sinful flesh and the world around us. Some days we feel so fragile and vulnerable. Why would I needlessly expose myself to the philosophies of an unregenerate person? We have enough to contend with to stay focused on the Lord. Why would I then tune in to a philosopher that the world may like, and, uh, who, but is unregenerate by his own confession and, and their take on how we should live and, and what our life means? And so just along the Jordan Peterson line and, and that, um, it just I brought to my attention about a month ago that we sing come thou found of every blessing the young people have loved to sing it come thou found of every it's a, it's was an old hymn and now it's a contemporary hymn come thou found of every blessing tune my heart to sing thy grace and then one stanza is my prone to wander Lord I feel it prone to leave the God I love here's my heart O take and seal it seal it for thy courts above but the very man that wrote those beautiful lyrics got away from the Lord because he was swept up with a man by the name of Joseph Priestley, who was a professed Christian. He was a natural philosopher, a chemist, innovative grammarian. I copied this out of, the, of, of Google. Multi-subject educator, a liberal political theorist. He discovered oxygen. He did not believe in the deity of Jesus Christ. He was a Unitarian. And the man who wrote, Come Thou Found of Every Blessing, got swept up with that philosophy and ended up far away. And so just on the disaffection of our hearts, how careful we need to be. We only have got a couple of minutes left. Um, we need to talk about how can I get back um, to the Lord. Well, our brother co covered this right at the start. And your first point here on the handout is retracing our steps. So he was referring to that, that, that little incident there, the, the, the sons of the prophets in two, is it two kings or one kings? Two kings five or six? Six. Six. Yeah. And uh, the axe head. And the point you made was, well, the intervention was, well, where did you lose it? Yeah. The old adage has ever been, has, has always been that the only way back is back by means of the cross. 
And uh, I found that in my own experience, recaptivating the heart, going back over your steps, where did you lose it? And then getting back to Calvary is uh, the hymn, Jesus, keep me near the cross always is very helpful to me. Yeah, a, a wee bit like Abraham again, getting back to the altar, mm -hmm. the place back to, and maybe, maybe Peter, Peter maybe didn't just pay attention, the full attention to the, the, the warning of the Savior that he should have. And then the Lord looked upon him and he remembered the word. So getting back to the cross, getting back to the word of God, Jonah got the word, moved away from that, but then he had to, the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time. So back to the word of the Lord as well. Yeah. And another often used one is the, um, is Mary and Joseph. I know it's in a physical sense. They, they lost the presence of, mm. of Jesus on their road, on the route back, uh, leaving Jerusalem. One day to lose him. It took them three days to find him. So you can be sure they searched every alleyway on the way back. Where did we lose him? And it's sort of the retracing our steps and, and, um, until, and not stopping till we find them. Where did these little choices start coming in? When did I start going down these trails? I, I just wanted to emphasize the basic point. We're begging the question a little bit, but there is a way back. I just want to emphasize that point. We very, very often, when we hear of news of people being restored, we're shocked. Like, wait, sorry, they, they came back? That's, that's the biblical pattern, is that when somebody is, is lost, we use the term backslidden, I think that's strictly an Old Testament term, but it captures the idea when we got away from things disaffected in the heart. We, we tend to have this assumption that, well, they're lost, that they're gone. But there is restoration. David is a classic example. You've read from one of his restoration psalms. There's a little character in the New Testament that I find very interesting. That's John Mark. He was the, he was the source of a big, he was political dynamite between, between Paul and Barnabas. He was the cause of a big dissension. And one said, yeah, we're going to take him. Barnabas wanted to take John Mark. And Paul says, no, I'm not having any of that. He says he had, he had turned back. But that is an interesting little thing added in the end of 2 Timothy by Paul himself as he's writing to Timothy. He says, when you, when you come to see me, Timothy, do everything you can to come and see me. He says, and when you come, take John Mark with him. Bring John Mark. Why? Because he is profitable to me in the ministry. Now, it might be that sphere of ministry could be altered, but there is still a sphere of ministry into which people should, uh, can be restored. It might be changed, but there is that. And we should underline the point that restoration is possible and is biblical. It was a resurrection priority for the Lord Jesus to go to Peter. A lot of things to happen. Resurrection was a big day. But on that day, he went to Peter. And even there, what, what uh, Mervyn's saying, between Mark having a, a ministry that he seemed to fail in, and then Mark having a ministry where the apostle says he's profitable for the ministry, so the field ministry and now this profitable ministry. What happened in between, I wonder, mm. that changed a, a wobbly servant into a good servant? I think we're making a bit of a guess. I think he had been occupied with a perfect servant mm. and probably had written the second gospel so that had refreshed mm -hmm. his ministry. Yeah. Uh, yeah, very good. 
So we we're not we're obviously not going over all these points. If you have the but but I think they're all they they are self-explanatory. Uh, but retracing our steps and removing that we have to if, once we retrace our steps, identify things we need to um, make adjustments to our life. Whatever those hindrances were, we need to address them. And um, I don't know, like I've taken David's little Psalm 51, and on my knees when I'm aware of failure in my life. I just adopt it as my own prayer of confession, and I, I would breathe it back to the Lord, and word for word, and put my name into it. But thank God, there's a, he's a, a God of restoration. And he, that is delightful to his heart. The one that reached out to the, the wandering, the prodigal son, that's the heart of God. He wants to see restoration. We have a couple of minutes left. Do you? I was just going to just thinking about that. You did in here the last one on the slippery slopes was covered sin, and the answer for that is exposing that sin. And just while I remember it, I don't know if he'll remember it or not. But I think it was back in two thousand and eight when you came to Bista one Easter. You spoke. I remember you reading. You read the story of the five Canaanite kings, <laughs> and I thought. Only David's going to get something out of this. But um, that, that message was a very helpful message. Do you remember giving that message? No. The five kings. <laughs> well, it's available, on, it's, it's available on the Hebron Gospel Hall website if you're interested in it. But in that, you identified five steps for recovery. And you, dealing with insurgent sin was the, little phrase that, was the little phrase that you had in there. I found that very helpful. One of them was taking it to the cross. So they took it and they hung the, the kings up on the tree was the point that you were making. And then after that, they buried it. And I think this is what you're really covering here. It could be the parting of ways with a friend. It could be the, uh, it's the confession and abandonment of sin. It's the changing of removing of hindrances and that kind of thing. You have to make practical steps. You can't go back to the same life and just live it all over again. Once you are restored, there has to be the removal of the things that tripped you up in the first place, the impediments, and the point that our brother was making was compare it next to the tree, next to Calvary, and then bury it in the tomb and roll the stone over. Okay. Yeah, and you, back to Naomi again, isn't it? But there were the things that happened, the bereavements and the burials and all, and then the things that she heard. She heard the Lord had visited his people and better things, I need to go back, and then she arose and came. So suffer the advert and when she arrived back she said, Well I I, I I would never have left had it not been for Elimelech. And I would never have been out of here only the two boys wanted to go. Wasn't a finger of blame pondered it. So I think that gets the humility that you mentioned there, yeah. So our own I want to ask I see the time here, but I wanted to ask just our brethren were speaking very validly. And seriously about false philosophies and false doctrines and so on. Tell me this, brethren, just, and this is only a general rule of thumb. Thinking of all the people that have gone away and the losses, how many have left because of false doctrine, the imbibed poisonous teaching, or how many have left just because of bitterness of spirit? Which of those, how would the proportion be? Would it be two to one? Or like In my personal experience, I can think of maybe a few, to talk about that, a few 
that have left with false teaching, false doctrine, sadly. Sadly, and the, the warning has been given very serious. But I can think of dozens that have left just because of sheer bitterness. And, and the, the Bible speaks about a root of bitterness springing up. So you get a hurt, then the root gets buried deep beneath the soil. Then you water it. And you nurse it with grudges for years. The root's still there. And then eventually, after a good deal of watering, suddenly it springs up. And before you know what was a bitter root becomes a poisonous plant. And you're destroyed. Mm. What we need to do is before it springs up, don't water it, get the trial and dig it out before it develops to do the damage. Mm. Excellent. Very good. Maybe we can just close. I'll give you one story. Uh, this is a remarkable uh, story from in my little narrow experience of life. But we were having meetings, uh, gospel meetings in an assembly. And uh, an older gentleman, not like, a, like 10 years older than me maybe, uh, started coming. He had come to the, the gospel supper a couple of months in a row and nobody seemed to know who he was. And then we went there for meetings, and he came out on Sunday night to the gospel supper and stayed for the gospel meeting, and then Monday night, and then on Tuesday night, and then he was there on Wednesday night. And uh, he said, this is exactly what I need. This is what I got when I was 12 years old. I asked him, who are you? He said, I'm Cecil Morton. Christians, had, his parents had gone home to heaven. They were godly saints in the assembly, and, and no one seemed to recognize him. And uh, so, well, I, it was very refreshing, but he got it when he was 12. And uh, the next night he came out again, and I said, Nice to see you, brother. And, uh, well, I, like I didn't know why he got emotional. And he said, Do you know how long it's been since anyone's called me a brother? said, can I go to coffee with you? So we went to, the other brother and I went to coffee with him. We took him to a uh, high-end McDonald's restaurant for coffee. And um, we literally had to get up multiple times to get more napkins. As he sat there in the tears, he was 69 years of age. And the tears were running down his face. And he told us his story. He left the, he was in the assembly. He left at age 19. And he went out into the world. Not even his closest members of his family that were still alive and his cousins believed he had a thing because of his lifestyle and how he had sinned and his, just the coarseness of his life and the women in his life. I'm just so thankful to tell you that God loves to restore. From 19 to 69, 50 years away from the Lord. And he's restored to the Lord. And his wife, a Catholic woman, trusted Christ about three months later. And I was just there about a month ago to the assembly. And they're happily serving. Get, took part of the Lord's Supper. Um, had an apron on, serve, helping to serve the meal. He's now 73. He's a God of restoration. But dear young person, what a tragedy to lose 50 years. I know why we had to get, keep getting napkins. 
because the years of wasted years. But the words of Peter, First Peter four, we can't undo our past. Don't spend too much time looking backwards. Just look back long enough to say, I want to keep looking forward. I don't want to live by my past mistakes. I want to focus on Christ. And Peter wrote in first, I think it's first Peter four to live the rest of your time to the will of God.